Before we get into today's guest of the SaaS Revolution Show, who's Derek O'Carroll, uh, CEO of BrightPearl, just a quick word from our sponsors. This episode of the SaaS Revolution Show is sponsored by Crankwheel. Uh, when you finally get that hard to reach prospect on the phone, don't waste the opportunity by booking a follow-up web conference. Instead, try Crankwheel, a screen sharing platform made for telesales. It lets you easily add a sales presentation or live demo to any phone call, keeping the conversation going. As winners of the SaaS startup pitch competition, Crankwheel knows the importance of helping our community. That's why they're offering you the chance to sign up for free for two months unlimited trial of all professional features. Just visit crankwheel.com forward slash SASDOC and go for the close on that first call. And don't forget, if you want to become an empowered SAS leader, then SASDOC Remote has your back. Uh, our global virtual conference is back from the 23rd of February to help you, the SAS founders and execs, get traction, grow, and scale your SAS. How? We'll be having deep dive workshops with uh, industry experts such as Jacko van der Kooi. We'll have one day of case study content around big problems founders have solved. Founders such as Tope Awatona, CEO of Calendly, recently raised huge round. Uh, Joel Gascoigne, CEO of Buffer. Uh, Edith Harbo, uh, CEO of Launch Darkly, uh, amongst others. Uh, we'll have one four hour session the following day of tactical talks to help your SaaS company win in 2021. If that's not all, SaaS.remote will open up again on the 3rd and 4th of March for two four-hour days of networking. Pre-book meetings with attendees using the networking tool, meet SaaS founders, meet with VCs, find your next customers, raise that next round. Just connect with SaaS entrepreneurs and execs from across the globe. Get your ticket at sas.com forward slash remote. Use code SASREVOLUTION20 for a 20% discount. Now on with the show. When you have a problem, you need to move fast. If you're not sure and the manager is not in the room, use the values and you're going to be allowed to fail fast in this environment. And we've, we've really invested in people development. So we regularly encourage people to go and get trained, new, new skills, new courses. And we're very transparent, like extremely transparent as an organization through the, through the, through the org. And the reason why we did that is that's the number one competitive differentiator is the culture. It's not the product, it's the culture. Anyone can copy a product pretty quickly, even more so in today's world. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, uh, Derek O'Carroll, CEO of Bright Pearl. Welcome, Derek. Alex, a real pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Great to have you on the podcast for, for the first time. I believe you've spoken at SaaS Doc uh, uh, before in the uh, not, not too uh, recent past. Yeah, I did a, I did a session on uh, SaaS unit economics, I think it was, and a, a turnaround story. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, in Dublin, I think it was two years ago. Yeah, Dublin. That was, uh, well, 2019 was definitely the. I think. 2019. I think, yeah, it must have been then. That was the last time we did an in-person conference, yeah. and uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, because of the, the pandemic, we've gone virtual. And um, yeah. uh, again, because of the pandemic, we're both at home. Uh, and where, where, where's home for you? Where, where, where are you calling? Uh, just outside a town called Stroud in Cheltenham in the UK. Um, yeah, sort of. That's where I'm based. Very nice, very nice, and uh, uh, and Derek. So um, you mentioned actually, uh, you, you know, around the turnaround. We uh, so you joined, uh, I believe, Bright Pearl in, in 2016 and, and helped the company, uh, you know, uh, through a turnaround, which we'll we'll we'll, we'll discuss, um, you know, a little bit at length uh, for uh, for the basis of this this podcast. Before we do, um, let's find out just a little bit about you. You know, who is Derek O'Carroll? Yeah, great. You can tell from my accent from Dublin, Ireland. 
um, moved to the UK in 87, originally started off uh, doing chemistry, went to uni, became a, you know, studied as a chemistry, uh, uh, chemist, um, wasn't very good at that, uh, saw a black and white CERN page, I think it was in 94, set up an advertising agency for online, back then, uh, did four startups over a period of about eight years, then the last one was sold into a large corporate called Symantec, which is a big security company, uh, had my first daughter that, uh, that year, my only daughter, excuse me, that year, and um, uh, my wife said, no more startups for a while, please. Uh, and I said, OK, that's cool. And I stayed at Symantec and we ended up um, being heavily involved. And we were supposed to be with a landing and launch pad for their acquisitions. And that was a very a highly acquisitive company. And our job was to deal with those acquisitions and then, you know, make them grow within the distribution uh, channel that was big Symantec. Did that for 10 years. And then on the 10th anniversary, I actually resigned. Uh, and went out to look for uh, uh, a project that I could get involved in. And I looked at a number of sectors, one of which was e-commerce, came across Bright Pearl and joined in April 2016. So that's me. Did you did you work with Jesper Fredrickson? Uh, I did. I know, I know Jesper well. Actually, that's how I did the SaaS talk, because Jesper dropped me a note saying, Derek, can you, can you uh, do a SaaS talk? And I said, well, yeah, but why? And he goes, oh, I can't make it. Could you stand in for me? So that's actually what happened there. I know Jasper very well. Okay. Yeah, he's uh, he's my old boss. Uh, uh, just to ah, there you just, go. Small, it's such a small world. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is definitely in SaaS. Well, good, good stuff. And, and Bright Pearl. So you, you know, after ten years doing that, uh, you joined Bright Pearl twenty sixteen. Um, why did you join Bright Bright Pearl? You know, what was the the lure there to to change? You know, at that point, and you know, how did they how did they bring you in? What was the the proposition there? Well, I didn't want to get involved in a pure startup, like brand new startup. I was looking for something that was in a, a sector that was ripe for disruption, which was obviously e-commerce. So I ticked that box. I was looking for something that I could add a lot of value quickly by pointing in the right direction. And therefore, it needed to have a customer base that maybe was under monetized. So I ticked that box. And um, I was looking for a technology platform that had potential uh, to give me true differentiation against the bigger guys. And I was looking for something... Um, that had global potential, obviously. So I looked at a different, a bunch of different sectors, but found three companies, three totally different sectors, did some initial DD, and then uh, went, went for Bright Pearl in April 2016. I, I joined in May. And, and, and since then, and, and as we, we mentioned at the, the, the start of the, uh, the podcast, you've helped turn Bright Pearl around, um, you, you know, uh, get it to, uh, I think, an ARR of 17 million. I don't know if it's this year's <coughs> or... Or, or, or last year, so and uh, and obviously recently, uh, as you mentioned, uh, or to me, I think before we were recording, uh, we've had a recent growth um, uh, uh, fundraise uh, with investment, you know, from Sage of thirty three million. Um, so if if we go back to twenty sixteen, um, uh, you know, why was the company in in need of a, a turnaround? Like, what were the challenges? And obviously, we, I'm sh- I'm assuming you were aware of the challenges when you took the job on. Um, and, and perhaps that, that was an appeal. Well, what, what were the challenges back then? Well, the company was set up in 2008 by a very talented chap called Chris Tanner um, and his partner, Andy Mulvena. And they saw an opportunity to provide a suite of tools to help small businesses to sell online and deal with all the complexities that arise after the buy button. And they built all those tools out really, really quickly. But they had a business model, which was <clears throat> very much based around self-service. So you could log on, set up an account, 40 bucks a month, uh, and then on you go from there. The problem with that is the back office, as a lot of listeners may know, is quite complex. 
So you end up with a tool set that's remarkably capable and then very small businesses that are very time poor. And so as a result, you have a real problem there in terms of what the first issue was, which was product market fit. So in summary, the product was pointed in the wrong direction and it was pointed at the wrong type of customer that would get the most value from the product. So that was the number one challenge that we had to fix. But it was the reason why I joined because within the customer base, I found you know, very, very big customers using Bright Pearl. Maybe they were turning over 200 million a year and they were paying you know, about 2000 bucks a year for the whole service. And, and that was actually one of the reasons why I joined. Um, yeah, so that was the first point we had to address. So, so uh, and I know there, there were kind of, I guess, kind of like three key points that you, you did address that were certainly uh, pivotal uh, in, uh, I think it was a, you know, doubling, doubling or tripling uh, you, you know, revenue to, to 17 million. Uh, and, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time, as I understand, speaking to employees, partners and customers to figure out those issues, right? Uh, and yeah. you've mentioned one of them, product market fit. Uh, I think the other one was um, like looking at the pricing strategy, as you said, you know, uh, people paying 40 bucks, you know, a, a month and customers that are, you know, generating 200 million revenue <clears> paying $2,000, you know, dollars a year or, or euros. Um, and um, just ensuring, again, I think as every CEO probably should do, making sure you've got the right people uh, in the right seats, you, you know, to kind of yeah. move, move the business forward. Let's take them step by step. <clears throat> so yeah. realigning product market fit, how did you go about doing this? So um, uh, I, I, I basically created a, a list called the, the jobs of work, which was uh, essentially a customer friendly way of looking at the product and answering the question, what, what jobs of work would you hire Bright Pearl for the service to do? And what value would you attach to them? And I went out and interviewed on a blind basis using a consultancy a company called the Alexander Group in the States. Uh, and this is sort of month one that we started this project. And the reason I did that was because I had a sense that the product was undervalued and pointed in the wrong direction, as we said. So they went out and they did a blind tasting and they looked at, well, what's the perceived value of those jobs of work? What's the cost of service for us to deliver those jobs of work? Um, and they did it for us. And they also did it for a competitor that I'd given them because I said, I want, to, I want you to map us against this competitor that's charging 20 times more than we do at the time. And they went off and validated that. And then in parallel, while they were doing that work, I went and interviewed uh, every single employee or most of our partners and about 50 of our customers. And I was, ask, I was basically asking them questions which were all around where do they see value? How decisions get made, obviously, internally? And um, what do you like and do not like about the product? Uh, and those two major studies took about the interviews took about 90 days and then the Alexander group exercise took about the same amount of period. And then that all came back and we reviewed the findings from there. And that essentially told us to point the product at bigger customers, uh, to right size the unit economics by charging more because the perceived value was much higher than the team at all. And then to use the, that extra uh, revenue when successful to accept a higher rate of churn from customers that you didn't want anyway because you were never going to make money out of them and that that was all in all i finished that project uh december 2016 so i started in may uh december and we relaunched the business with a new product marketing positioning and messaging in, in january 2017 and obviously that did mean a big big change on pricing there's two changes we made one was we quadrupled the pricing on the existing structure which was user-based 
And then we, 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 we realize that automation is a big trend. So you don't want to be charging for users when there's going to be less of them because of automation. So we, need, we move to a utility model, um, uh, charging our customers based on GMV, gross merchandising volume, and also number of orders, whichever is higher in the contract. And that change was made uh, and launched in 2017 in January. But those things take a long time to work through a customer base that is six years old. You got to get everyone on new contracts. You have to retrain and invest in your customer success. And but by 2018, end of, we started seeing a material improvement in what we call dollar retained revenue, which is essentially the measure of how much more your customers are buying for you in year two and year three. So that was the approach we took there on ICP and pricing. On the pricing side of things, like often very sort of underrated in terms of a lever to, you know, help you know, SaaS companies grow. When you, you mentioned sort of in terms of changing the model and, you know, base, uh, making it sort of utility based, is that something that you came up with internally or was there, again, was, was there external kind of support uh, around that? Like who owns pricing like within the business, you know, you see that this in marketing, was this you being involved? Like how, how, how did this work? Yeah, so, so in parallel, when we started out of the interviews uh, came a, uh, a short list of barriers that everyone had circled back up to me or fed back up to me, things that were slowing us down. So they became structured projects called continuous improvement projects and each team nominated themselves to participate and drive to closure and a successful outcome, one of which was pricing. Um, so that the exec sponsor on that was me, the owner was finance, and then the contributors and the informed were either customer success or sales. And obviously sales don't want to hear that you're going to increase the pricing. Um, but when you tell them that one of the problems that are inherent with pricing is you're pointing the product at the wrong type of profile, that kicks off a whole different other project with sales so that they don't sell tomorrow's churn. So you've got to focus them on customers that see the, the most value from the product, which obviously resulted in much higher uh, average order value. So average order value on, a, on an annual basis back then was uh, for new business, for new business, not total revenue, was about $4,000. And uh, in 2020, it's now up at $38,000 per, per year without ProServe, that's just subscription. So it's a multi-headed project that you have to take on to, to deal with it. But pricing is the number one lever. I'm always amazed why people don't focus on it as much as you should do, because it's an ongoing thing. I think we've changed it four times and it goes right through into processes. It influences heavily your contracts. And there's a great firm actually, which I'm sure you've, uh, you've uh, uh, interviewed, Patrick at ProfitWell uh, yeah. and the crew over there. They, they've got this nailed in terms of the methodology that they can help a customer with. And then the other side of the equation is customer success and the team over at Gainsight, Nick Matta's crew uh, and Dan Steinman, they have, the, they have all of the customer success side of the equation productized and they're the two sides of the equation. And then, and then the last one is the, the sales discipline. You know, don't, don't, don't leave it up to the sales guys to figure out how to sell it. That, that's a piece of science in itself. Uh, so we, we, we put a lot of work in 2016 into writing playbooks so these are very defined. This is what you do at each step. This is what happens when this results in a yes. This is what happens in a no. And it's a very rigorous standardized process that we review all the time to iterate. And pricing is the same. You know, we have a pricing playbook and we're continually iterating it because it's the number one lever 
of uh, of growth that you go after. Yeah, agree. A lot of people, a lot of people said it and forget it. Fantastic. And and on the, I mean, great to just circling back to a, a little bit. What are you saying? Like one of the first things you did in terms of speaking to all the employees, you know, uh, and all your customers. <laughs> Uh, again, like how important that is for like CEOs or companies uh, uh, to do. And I think in probably one of the first couple of pages in, in Vern Harnish is like scaling up and talks of like, if you need to get a pulse on, on your company, the two things that you need to do. So like speak to your customers and speak to your, 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 your colleagues or your, your employees. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very underrated. There's a good, there's a good tool actually we use in Slack called Donut, which because um, I, I, I'm very keen on we set strategy, but, you know, it's not always going to be right and you need to sense check it to your point. So we do a lot of I do a lot of one to ones every every week. I do at least four one to ones with anyone like it's just randomly picked from from Donut. And they're great because it helps to validate the connection between your strategy and what's really going on. And it helps you to inform uh, why you need to be paranoid, because it's such a fast moving space. And your employees and your team, they have the answers and you've got to have that feedback loop. And I think that's the other thing we had to train Bright Pearl on when we joined is that, you know, there were seven companies within one company when I joined. So we had to really work on breaking the, the barriers down and get putting in place operational calendars. So they had these feedback loops so they could get those checks and balances in place. And, and that was something that uh, I've seen before, uh, which you really need to address in a, in a turnaround situation. We, 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 or I actually implemented Donut as well in, into Slack, but we're a much smaller team. Uh, and then uh, it didn't, it hasn't really worked uh, uh, so well uh, initially. You know, it got good, um, it was well received initially, but uh, effectively it would like match you with somebody that I've just had a one-to-one with uh, because we're, we're much smaller. Um, and yeah. it, we, we just couldn't get it off the ground. But I do, I, I love the concept. And I think certainly bigger companies than SaaS stock, uh, I can see it working really well. And that's why I tried to, uh, to get that going. Um, yeah. The, the kind of the third, the third thing, and also very, very crucial, right? I, and I hear that uh, from a lot of companies, uh, rightly so. And, you know, people like John, uh, Jim Collins, you know, if you, you read his books, uh, you, you know, I think uh, good to great, right? And it's about having the right people on the bus or having the right people in the right seats. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this, <laughs> again, that, uh, of, of course, that you, you looked at, making sure the right people were there in the business. How did you go about doing that? You know, what was the outcome? Did you have to make anybody redundant? Was everybody there? Did you have to move people into different seats? Uh, keen to know and, and the impact on that. Yeah, so the, so the guardrail, the way we work is once we got alignment on strategy, then we planned the structure to enable that strategy. And then we looked at the skills required in each part of the structure. And then that gave us the people uh, equation. And by following that rigor, we could then very clearly see who was not in the right seat. Um, but in, par- in parallel of that, uh, when we went out and interviewed everyone, we got this list of continuous improvement projects. This is in the early days. And I needed to understand, you know, what's this team like when I, when I point them in the one direction? And we used those projects and we set up a mechanism where people could nominate themselves to participate in a project that was going to make us all go faster. And we talked about it on the on the um, all hands every two weeks and people nominated and we gave them structure, you know, who's going to be the driver, who's going to be the approver, the contributor. So it was quite a formal process. But what that really did for us was it allowed us to really see who was capable and who had the skills and who didn't and then who needed the development. 
So that, that's the old saying, when, you, when, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And, and we just created that environment, uh, but in a positive way, because it was all about removing barriers to go faster. And by doing that, we had uh, a healthy degree of attrition. Um, we, had, we, we, we made changes early on in the management because they were actually part of the problem. Uh, you know, they just didn't tell the truth and everything was always happy. And I think my first chat to the team was, we're going to go through the valley of death as we, as we re-gear this business. So managing everyone's expectations was very important. Um, and, then, and then once we're through that, what we did was we invested heavily in a chief of staff uh, a team that are all focused on culture, quite frankly. So we've put in place values that were developed by the team. So this is in early 2017. We went out to the team and said, well, you know, how, how, how do you want this environment to look like? I'm not going to tell you. What do you guys think? And we ran a process and they all fed back what values they wanted to work on. And some were current and some were aspirational. And, and then we packaged that up and they are the company values. And we say to people, values are not so, sort of things on a wall that, you know, you see, you know, Europeans can be quite cynical about values. Um, they're actually there to help you make decisions because they act as filters. When you have a problem, you need to move fast. If you're not sure and the manager is not in the room, use the values and you're going to be allowed to fail fast in this environment. And we've, we've really invested in people development. So we regularly encourage people to go and get trained, new, new skills, new courses. Um, and we're very transparent, like extremely transparent as an organization through the, through, the, through the org. And the reason why we did that is that's the number one competitive differentiator is the culture. It's not the product. It's the culture. Anyone can copy a product pretty quickly, even more so in today's world. And so that's, that's a quick whirlwind tour of, of how we got it to a point now where people like working at Bride Pro because it's a challenge. Um, and they know they're going to be heard. And we celebrate success. And um, even in lockdown, we've managed to keep our sanity because I suppose we were sort of a remote company anyway. Um, you know, our sales process is 100% over, over Zoom anyway, even before COVID. And yeah, it's allowed us, that's allowed us to grow and, and attract really good people. Um, and we're having a lot of fun. And that puts us in a great position for, for going forward. But that was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. But it sounds like... Uh sort of the framework there you you, you know you you've got it right and you you know the the results kind of speak for themselves uh, and 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 something that we uh, like as a result of i think all of these things and, and these three things that that you did as you said the, you've had this kind of new focus on a uh, on an uh, icp that's you know uh, slightly more upmarket uh, and you've seen like bigger deal sizes um you know perhaps could we go into a little bit about um, yeah. you've changed the price but like then uh, going after these bigger accounts, going you know, say ACV of like thirty eight k, you know how you've you, you've helped the, the sales team go through that transition. Did you have to hire a new sales team to do that? Was the existing sales team were kind of like okay, we can use you to to go after the the the, the enterprise or, or, or the elephants? Yeah. So so if I was to look back then, the the sales strategy was get a prospect on a phone call and tell them how amazing your product is. What, what happens now is we get a prospect on a call and we interview them as to what they want to achieve and we align them to what we're going to be able to deliver for them and we're very explicit on what we're not going to be able to deliver for them. And so it's, it's, it's that outcome-based selling uh, strategy that we uh, initiated in 2017 in the form of playbooks, in the form of a brand new team um, and we retrained everyone on how to sell value on an outcome basis. Because here's the thing, 
cloud platforms are not customizable in the main, right? You know, old old platforms are, but the new ones like Briperl are not cu customizable, configurable, but not customizable. So you can't get yourself in a situation with a client whereby they want X, Y, Z, and that's not on your roadmap and you can't deliver that. So we've just translated that concept down to the sales team. And that means that they, they then are very focused on who we allow them to sell to. So you, we're not allowed to sell, if I'm a salesperson of Bright Product, just not allowed to sell to anyone below a million dollars in revenue. It's just, we know the economics don't work. We just won't, we won't allow them to do that. But ergo, over the last three years, the reason why we've been successful is three years ago, we wouldn't allow the sales team to sell to anyone new business bigger than 30 million GMV turnover. So it was one to 30 million because we knew technically we had some issues that we needed to overcome on a scaling basis. But in year two, we, we allowed them to sell up to 60 million. And in year three, we allowed them to sell up to 150 million. And now we are allowing them to sell up to 250 million. And the reason why we did that was to make sure that we were not selling tomorrow's churn. Because a lot of people look at churn and they go, oh, it's product or customer success. But one of the main drivers is salespeople selling to the wrong customer in the first place and mismanaging expectations. So we've really focused on that with them. Um, uh, I've got a great non-executive director, a guy called Fergus Gloucester, who was one of the, who was one of the first chaps on um, SFDs. Sorry, um, yeah, you're not in uh, Salesforce, Salesforce, Salesforce. Yeah. And Fergus has been just relentlessly valuable at the board, just, just reminding us of the basic fundamentals of a cloud, of a successful cloud business. And he's been maniacal about keeping us focused and the sales teams focused on, you know, don't always blame the product because we've got to have the, the right sales strategy pointed in the right direction. I'd say actually, you know, if I look at the product, there's actually less product there than there was three years ago. If anything, I've gone deeper and made it faster and stronger and more automated. I haven't actually built more. Whereas, you know, if I was to interview a salesperson three, three years ago, they would have given me a long list of what I needed to build. And that's usually a trap that people fall into. The, you know, there's a good book in product management called Avoiding the Build Trap. And that's that scenario of people just telling you to build new shit. Just don't. Just focus on what your customers want and make those jobs of work amazing, available, performant, and you'll be fine. You know, and then obviously invest as you get stronger uh, when your unit economics get there. But yeah, controlling the ICP through sales has been fundamental to our success. Definitely, definitely. And on Fergus, I mean, he, he actually spoke at the first SaaS stop in 2016, I think yeah. on a panel with Jesper uh, as well. But he also, we, we did our like first sort of boot camp the day before the conference. And it was like, yeah. it was a full stack uh, boot camp. So we covered Patrick Campbell was there doing pricing. Yeah, and yeah. Steeman was doing uh, customer success. And we had Fergus come in and do sales. And nobody knew who Fergus was, right? Because there's a lot of young, you know, sales, uh, young um, uh, like SaaS founders uh, that, you, you know, yeah. running their first company. And they're like, who's this guy? We never kind of heard of him. By the end of it, they were just like absolutely blown away. And they were like, wow, that was just kind of worth flying into Dublin uh, for, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, he, he, he's exceptional. And he's a maths head as well. You know, he likes to he teaches maths. So, um, uh, which is very important when you're looking at the, the, the moving and shaking that occur on SaaS metrics. When you, when you listen to any person talk about their SaaS business, it's a great opportunity for them to do smoke and mirrors across the numbers. And uh, people like Fergus see through all that shit. So yeah. he's, he's an invaluable uh, member of the team and has been great added value.
Definitely, definitely. So, so we, we've seen the, the uh, what you've done to implement this turnaround. It's had great results. Um, uh, was it double or triple revenue? Uh, and correct me because uh, I've been saying uh, sort of both. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's uh, we're growing revenue now at forty uh, percent per year uh, on average. You know, that's basically what yeah. it's tracking along. Okay. We're at eighty. We're at eighteen million revenue subscription revenue. We've got bookings yeah. on top of that for ProServe. And we've got a, a sustainable growth profile. So we're not, we're not a team that will go for huge growth at the expense of the right unit economics. It's all about getting the efficiency into the system, then investing more. And, 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 and that's essentially what we're doing. Yeah, so 40% growth. One thing I should have mentioned, though, that has been central to our success is back then we were about 15% of our revenue was in the US. And now it's 60% of our revenue. So, and half of our team are over there. So that was a really interesting uh, part of the turnaround because our, our team was based in downtown San Francisco when I joined, mm-hmm. very expensive. The team, you know, didn't have a very high standard of living. They would swing a cat in their room if you went to their apartment. And so we moved that to Austin, Texas in uh, 2017, late 2017. And we hired a brand new team there of people who were experienced at selling complex B2B. Um, and that was another important part of the, uh, the the company's success. So getting that balance of, because a lot of European companies go to the US and they fail on, on hiring the initial team. It took us about a year of, you know, it, if there was ever a reason to go slow, to go fast, it's hiring your first team. Because this, it, that's you get that wrong and you're, you're cooked. Um, so that was a big area of focus for us. And I had some experience from, from previous lives. So. And Texas also is a great place. Uh, we were very lucky to choose there. Sadly, never been, um, but uh, I've had many of the invites and uh, it's, it's definitely a plan. We, we actually, um, before Christmas, we closed a deal down, like an annual contract with one of our partners that's based in us in Texas. And we said, well, yeah. when, when COVID is over, we'll come over uh, and celebrate, <laughs> celebrate yeah. with you, uh, over there. But um, we'll have to wait and, uh, until then. Um, and, and in terms of... Um, you, you know the future. So obviously, well, well, actually, recent past. You've just raised thirty-three million. Uh, Sage have got involved. Why? Uh, why did they get involved? Uh, and and what are you going to do with the money? Well, you know, what's the future looking like? You're in e-commerce, which is booming. Um, so imagine it's uh, looking good. Yeah, no, it's a very, it's a very. Um, we're in a great space. It's it's a hot space. We're really well positioned. We've got a great team. Um, what we decided to do was to you know, uh, go big or go home, quite frankly. So we, we were at risk of, uh, you know, we got the unit economics to a place where we were, you know, making money, not losing money. We were growing at a good pace, but we were at risk of winning the battle and losing the war if we didn't really go bigger. So we decided last year to go out and look for uh, funds to be able to accelerate growth. <clears throat> and we had two options. We could go down the private equity, growth equity route, uh, with aggressive acquisitions and also continued organic growth, or we could go and look for strategic uh, partnership, which would give us access to distribution and maybe access to an area uh, that is very expensive to put direct, uh, you know, organic investment into, which was in this instance accounting. So BrightPro looks after everything uh, after the buy button online, but a key component of our offering is accounting, right? And um, I didn't want to get into a situation where I was going to start putting millions and millions of dollars developing a, a next generation accounting platform when I could find a partner to give me access to that technology. So that was the reason 
why when we looked at the offers that we had, we really liked uh, the Sage and the Sage Intax platform in particular, because they bought a company called Intax. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the culture, the people, um, and the journey that Sage are on was very attractive to us. So people in tech and obviously value, uh, and that brought all, all parties together. And we decided to go to go with them. So we're now getting access to that technology stack and, and vice versa. And we'll be coming to market uh, shortly with uh, more value within our platform for our customers that we serve. Um, so that's one key, key, key area. Uh, and the whole con- the whole um, uh, market is moving towards you know automated accounting essentially as I trade do my accounts for me and in a particular play like Bright Pearl where we are sector specific all we do is retail and wholesale that becomes much more sustainable you know and achievable achievable and sustainable excuse me as opposed to a generic provider that's serving all of the all of the different sectors so accounting is going to be a big area for us uh, this year. We're really doubling down on automation because, um, you know, an ERP is a B2B solution. Once it's set up, there really shouldn't be a reason for people to log into it. You know, you get an order, uh, everything right through to fulfillment should be automated. And we know that the more automated an order is in the back office, the less chance you have a bad review because you have less chance of human error. So we're really putting a lot of uh, investment into our, automation engine to realize that vision. And then we're very close with um, Shopify, Shopify uh, Plus in particular. So that's their enterprise offering. Uh, great, great bunch of folks over there working really well with them. We actually run Shopify's um, hardware business for them in terms of we provide the back office solution to them. And uh, we're doubling down to make sure that Shopify and Bright Pearl uh, is the best digital operating platform and e-commerce uh, market out there. Uh, that's the quickest out of the box. And then there's some other areas of innovation uh, which are really fed by our customers saying, hey, Derek, I'd like you to have better forward allocation or there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're allocating time to. And then the last area is we're selling to bigger customers every month now. They require uh, higher SLAs. They require more stamps on the security assurance bar. All of that costs money. So we're investing there as well. So that, that's what we're going to be doing. Um, staying focused in our core areas of the US and the UK. Also, awesome. we do have international customers. And so that's what we're doing uh, with the money. And, and let's come to the final question. Um, you know, I always ask our customers how they stay healthy and sane, and especially <clears> as we're in lockdown now. Uh, you, you know, what's your way of, uh, of, of staying healthy and sane uh, whilst running Bright Pearl and uh, also being yeah. in lockdown? So, so as I said at the beginning, I'm lucky enough to live in the countryside. Uh, like I live in a small village in the Cotswolds in the UK, outside Stroud. And out the back of my house is what's now called the 4G forest, which I didn't know it, it was that. So I do all my morning calls walking because I can do, I could do it on Zoom. And uh, uh, it's kept me quite, quite trim. So I walk in the morning for my first three hours of calls. Wow. Um, and then uh, that's keeping me sane. Hanging out with the family because I'm actually seeing the kids. Uh, which uh, on, on the face of it was problematic, but actually has turned out to be great fun. So there's a lot of slagging that goes on in the household, uh, uh, which is keeping everyone healthy. And um, and then, you know, we do things like we're rotating. Everyone's everyone's cooking every night. So my, my kids are a little bit older, so they're able to cook. So we run. That's quite funny. You might get a good meal one day and the next day it's, it's a disaster. Um, and yeah, and, and we're all 
this lockdown is a lot more aggressive or assertive than the first one. So we're not seeing anyone except online, but all of that together. And, and I play tennis as well. A keen, keen tennis player when I don't put my back out because at my age, you know, I still think I'm 25 and I'm not. Uh, so I've got to be careful of injuries on, on that front. So all of that, keep insane through that. Awesome. Three, three hours of calls and, and walking. It must, does it tire out your arm or have you got some special? Oh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't do the video thing. I, okay. I'll say hello and say I'm walking. Yeah. And I've got a, I've got a dog now, a whippet, uh, Tippy, who's now 12 years old. So um, she's still pretty fit, but I think I'm knackering out slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Derek, uh, thanks so much for being a, a, an awesome guest today on the SAS Revolution show. I really appreciate you, appreciate you sharing uh, the turnaround story there and, and the kind of really three pillars uh, that you, um, you know, implemented to, uh, to do that. So fantastic stuff and great learnings for the SAS doc uh, community. So really appreciate that. Jerrica Carroll, CEO of Brightfell. Thank you very much. Pleasure being with you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the SAS Revolution show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world.